is Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 2 to 29. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son. He was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. This is God's word.
Let's pray as we, uh, as we begin, as we turn to God's word together. Our Father God, we, uh, we need to know uh, what life will be like and we need to know about the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can trust him through all that happens. And so we pray that tonight you would open our eyes that we might learn the truth of the Lord Jesus and the truth of the world in which we find ourselves. Amen. If you're a Christian, you are at war. As Christians, we are at war, not with ISIS, uh, not with politicians or people from other religions, uh, not with uh, a secular culture. We're at war because there is a great cosmic war between God and Satan, between God, the author of life and good and peace and truth, and Satan, the father of lies and murder and death. Now Jesus has won that war through his death on the cross and the power of sin has been finally broken, not just in an abstract sense, but broken in your life if you trust in Jesus. But the presence of sin remains in this age and the world is still full of evil and suffering and people are still blind to who Jesus is. And tonight, uh, Jesus is going to teach us in Mark's gospel how to live in a time of spiritual war, what to expect. And we need to listen up because the gods of this age, our careers, our relationships, our, our busy London lives, they blind us to the fact that we live in war. And if we're not to be overwhelmed by the opposition that we face, We need to understand our times and we need to understand the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what this passage will teach us. Now we're in in this section over the summer between Mark 8.27 to Mark 10.52, this central section of Mark where uh, we're being taught that Jesus has come. God has sent his Messiah, his saviour king into the world, but he's very different from their ideas and I guess our ideas of what a saviour king should look like. He will achieve his victory by dying in weakness and shame on a cross. And his followers, if we follow Jesus, our lives will be marked not by victory and and prosperity and glory, but by self-denial, by taking up our cross, Jesus says. And last week we saw him take Peter, James and John up on a mountain. We had that at the beginning of the reading. And Jesus was transfigured. That is, uh, his, his humanity was, if you like, torn off for a minute. And his full divine radiance shone out like the sun. He was seen as who he is. But his glory will be veiled now, again, until the end of time. And so Jesus comes back down the mountain literally and metaphorically. And I think what Mark is doing in this section really is, is, is giving us a snapshot of what life is like down the mountain, what life is like for us in this age. It's a snapshot designed to encourage the people of Mark's day as they face difficulty and opposition following Jesus. And it's designed to encourage us too as we seek to, to follow Jesus and we wonder, well, what is life going to be like? If, if Jesus is this awesome, mighty king, what, what can I expect from life if I follow him? Uh, and what will it look like? How, how does it work for, for him to be a mighty king and yet, and yet I have to take up a cross? How, how does it all work? It is a picture here, so you don't expect a sort of one-for-one um, equivalence with all the details. But the broad themes are meant to encourage us to trust that Jesus has all the power we need before his return. 
Now, actually, in spite of the, the weirdness, I guess, to us of demonic possession, this is a surprisingly recognizable scene when you look at the details. In this snapshot, we'll see evil running riot, oppressing people and bringing death. We'll see that the people who are affected are distraught and desperate for help. We'll see the religious leaders bickering and arguing and debating, but utterly irrelevant and useless when evil actually needs confronting. Something's never change. We'll see the disciples powerless when they trip step in to try to help but we'll also see that there is one man who calmly steps forward and who has evil completely under his control and is able to destroy evil and to bring life and he's the man who we need our eyes on as we live in this world let's look you've got uh, you've got the points on the outline two just two points for us tonight um although there's quite a lot of little points at the end but anyway just two big points firstly overwhelmed by evil Look with me, Mark chapter 9, we'll dive in at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. So Jesus um, is not displaying his full divine glory, but it does seem that um, he doesn't look quite ordinary again. There's something quite Uh, There's something just a bit different about him, which is in one sense fitting because although his glory is veiled, he is manifesting his power in this world, overcoming evil and saving people. And so verse 16, uh, what are you arguing with them about, he asked, which sounds to us quite an innocuous question, doesn't it? But if you read through this whole section from 8 to 10, you'll notice it's not an innocuous question at all. It's exactly the same question he asks in next week's passage, verse 33. And it seems to go with Jesus asking the disciples when they've totally stuffed up. It's, what are you arguing about? I know exactly what you're arguing about. And every time he asks this question, it's because they've completely misunderstood what life ought to look like following Jesus. It's when they've mistaken that it's time for the cross now and the crown only comes later. They've not understood what it means for him to be the Messiah or for them to follow him. And the answer actually then comes, um, not from the disciples, but in verse 17, from a very, very desperate man. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, I think at that point, Jesus is talking about the disciples rather than um, just, rather than the father. It's, It's a criticism of them, not him, as we'll see. So they brought him, verse 20. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Can you imagine that? Now, one of the fundamental duties of a parent is to to keep a child from danger which is a very, very difficult task. I mean, if, you've, if you come in the morning when there's, a, there's loads of small children around, they, 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 at the end of church, they all sort of mill around here, happily playing with the toys, it, until, until if somebody happens to open the doors to the road, something magical happens, and they drop the toys, and 
And they just, it's just as if they're magnetically attracted to danger. Or if somebody leaves the, the boiling water running for, to, for the hot water, the toys get dropped and they just sort of wander towards it. It's just like there's this magnetic attraction between small children and danger. And so a parent's job is fraught, trying to, trying to keep a child safe. But can you imagine how much worse if a child is possessed by an evil spirit? A spirit who is deliberately trying to harm, to burn, to destroy the little life. Can you imagine the anguish and the stress of being a parent to this child? It's bad enough battling the will of a stubborn toddler, a normal toddler, but battling with the will of a demonic spirit who can never be placated or bribed with sweets or reasoned with or talked down, who will only be happy when the child is dead. Can you imagine what it was like for those parents? What scars and injuries this boy must have had. But before we go any further, I guess we, we do need to pause because for some of us, there is just a credibility gap at this stage. Uh, when the Bible talks about demons, evil spirits, we're thinking, whoa, you, no, no. Uh, it may be that medics among us read the description here and think, you know what, this just sounds an awful lot like epileptic seizures. But actually, the, the gospel writers were, were well aware of the difference between demonic possession and epileptic seizures, medical seizures. So in Matthew 4.24, um, Matthew explicitly distinguishes, he said, Jesus healed those who had seizures and casted out demons. He recognizes two different things. They knew that they're different things. They're not uh, foolish, pre-scientific people making just clashing mistakes. The Bible's claim, rather, is that behind the evil in the world that you and I can see, that is reported in the news, there stands a personal, malevolent force, the devil. And when God became a man, uh, when, when God took on flesh and became Jesus, as he steps into the world, that is an invasion. That's an invasion. And you expect there to be an unnatural, uncommon, strange amount of spiritual stirring up. The, the demonic forces are going to fight back. You expect that when God comes to the earth, strange stuff is going to happen. And that's exactly what the Gospels record. There is more demonic possession and exorcism in the Gospels than anywhere else in the Bible because God has invaded the world and Satan is fighting back. But also we do need to recognize our experience here in the secular West is not the experience of the rest of the world necessarily. Inexplicable, malign spiritual activity is not so surprising in many different parts of the world. So don't arrogantly assume, bah, if it's outside my personal experience, it must just be nonsense. It can't be real. Millions of people would disagree with us at that point. The Bible is clear. Not everything uh, that goes wrong is demonic. But there is such a thing as real spiritual wickedness. Demons. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. Now, okay, there have been lots of accounts of demonic possession in Mark, but this is, this is the, the second from last miracle pretty much in the, whole, in the whole book. Why does he choose to record at this moment in the gospel when, when Jesus is doing much less, by the way, of uh, healing? He seems to be focusing much more on teaching the disciples. So why does Mark choose to record this healing here, this exorcism here? There are two things, I think, that receive particular focus when you look through the account. The first is the stress on death, and we'll come back to that. But the second, the second which we'll pick up here, is the impotence of everyone to handle real evil. They are overwhelmed by evil. 
The poor father can do absolutely nothing. We're not told the religious leaders even tried. They're far too busy arguing with the disciples. That's basically all they do in Mark. But the sobering thing, I think, is the absolute failure of the disciples. Now, that might not surprise you to think, okay, you know, when it comes to a battle, you've got demons and disciples. I'm going to back the demons. That's, you know, that sounds like an unfair battle, which we might think. But back in Mark 3.14, when Jesus appointed the 12 disciples, he says this, Mark 3.14. He appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Hmm. What? Okay. So how come they can't? The answer comes at the end of the passage. Verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. In other words, they tried to drive out a demon by their own power. They'd not realized we, we need to rely on God's strength. We need to pray to God if we're going to drive out a demon. So why does Mark tell us about this incident? Well, once again, at this point in Mark's gospel, he's explaining what life looks like under the reign of Jesus Messiah. A Messiah who's not like what we imagine. It's not all glory now. He's going to win the war, but it won't be finished. He has invaded the world, but he hasn't just mopped up the enemies yet. The disciples seem to think, well, now Jesus has been revealed as God's Messiah. Well, all evil forces will just crumble. You know, I mean, it's, it'll be easy to take them on. We can cast out any evil we like. And Jesus again and again and again in these chapters has to rewire their wonky understanding and their unbiblical expectations. This is the age of the cross, not the crown. This is the age of battle, not of victory and celebration. And it's a lesson we need to learn if we're not going to be destroyed by disappointment as Christians when we think, why is life so hard? I thought it should be great if I trust in Jesus and he's God's king. I was uh, um, watching a, a video of, um, about uh, police dogs when I was living vicariously. Uh, my dog control skills, uh, two words, the video, well, three words, the video Fenton. If you've ever seen that on YouTube, yeah. So, um, but I was watching this phenomenal video of a, a, a police attack dog taking down a suspect. And the control the guy had was absolutely incredible. I mean, it was like the dog was radio controlled. And it flies in, takes out this guy, pins him to the floor. And the moment the guy says, off, the dog shoot, sat. And then the guy tries to run, take him. And he's, the dog, I mean, it was absolutely incredible level of control. I was weeping gently. Um, I tried to encourage Milo to watch it with me, but um, he was having none of it. Uh, but the interesting thing is, when the suspect shouted, get off, get off, the dog did not obey him at all. Totally ignored him. There was only one voice that dog recognized, and that was his master. And his master had complete control over him. There is only one voice the demons recognize throughout the Gospels. There is only one person who reduces the demons to a quivering wreck. And that is Jesus. Evil submits to Jesus, not the disciples. And so if they're ever going to be effective in dealing with evil, as God calls them to, as Jesus empowers them to, they need to keep remembering it is only by trusting in God. The disciples need to be reminded here evil is very serious and is way beyond their control. 
And when people forget to turn to God, evil is overwhelming, utterly overwhelming. Well, the humans in the scene are basically overwhelmed by the evil they face, but not Jesus. The second thing we see is he overcomes evil and he brings life. Let's actually, uh, let's go back to verse 20 and start again there. So they brought him, this is the demon-possessed boy. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and, and help us. If I can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's interesting, even with his divine majesty veil, Jesus is terrifying to the demons. He just falls at his feet. The poor father is confused and full of doubts. Which is understandable when you've seen the destructive power of the demon, when you've lived with it for year after year. But now he's brought the demon-possessed child to Jesus and he sees that Jesus is very, very different from the religious leaders and even the disciples. Verse 25 When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf, mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet and he stood up. No fuss, no debates, no argument, no back and forth. Jesus speaks a word, evil is gone. But as I said earlier, Mark wants to see something else in this exorcism, something more than just Jesus' power to destroy evil, and one day he will destroy evil completely. But I don't think that's the primary thing Mark wants us to to learn from here. You see, there's an emphasis here on death. I wonder if you notice that evil wants death. That's what Jesus has come to confront and to destroy. So look back, verse 22. The demon wants to kill him, we're told. Verse 26, the boy is so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. Three times Mark mentions death, kill, death, corpse. And when Jesus casts out the evil spirit, the word for lifted to his feet in verse 27 is the word the angel uses in chapter 16 to say Jesus has been raised, lifted back to life. And the word for stood up is the same word that's translated resurrection. And in fact, in Mark chapter 5, when uh, Jesus raises the um, uh, Jairus' child from the dead, his daughter, same two words for raised up and stood up appear to describe the child who was dead coming back to life. Mark wants us to see in this incident a picture of what Jesus is doing now. Releasing us from the grip of evil and bringing us from spiritual death to life. Those things the Messiah is doing now and he wants us to understand it. Now is the time of the cross when evil seems to rule the world. The time before Jesus is revealed in his glorious power. But now is also the time when Jesus is at work in power bringing life to those who are spiritually dead. Trapped in evil and death. Not of demonic possession but in the far more serious possession to be honest of slavery to sin. 
a possession that is every bit as powerful and every bit as satanic, to be honest, and every bit as dangerous for our souls. And it is a bondage that also ends eventually in eternal death. But Jesus, we learn here, has come to speak words of life to those who are in bondage to sin and who are dead. He has come to give us eternal life. It's a very simple account in many ways, but it has profound lessons for us. So what are we to learn? Uh, Three things, I think, that we're to learn. Firstly, do not underestimate the opposition. We are in a war and we face deadly, serious opposition. Don't be foolish and naive. I think uh, there are lots of areas we could, we could apply this, but there are just two areas that it springs to my mind that we foolishly forget how serious our opposition is. Firstly, the power of evil. There are deeply ingrained patterns of sin in my heart, and I know that there will be in yours as well. And we naively think, I don't really need to worry about it. I mean, Jesus has died, my sins are forgiven, one day I'll be in heaven, yada, yada, yada. It's all fine. It's not a big deal anymore. And we fight our sin as if, to be honest, the enemy is sort of already dead. We're like, yeah, it's, I mean, it, does it really matter that much? I'm forgiven. Jesus is going to take me home. And we play with sin as if it's just no longer dangerous for us. But then we find ourselves realizing, I, I'd actually quite like to be free of this. It's causing me uh, shame and and we realize that, oh, the slavery is pretty strong. Or, or uh, we find it starts to cause problems between us and people who get too close to us. The sinful patterns in our hearts, the pride, it starts to cause us difficulties in our relationships. And we think, oh, this isn't so good. And then we find we cannot change. And we realize that the, the sin we thought was not all that serious is very strong is very deeply rooted and there's nothing it seems we can do about it. We are utterly powerless to overcome the evil. We play with it. We toy with it. And the Holy Spirit wants to warn us tonight through Mark's gospel. Don't underestimate sin. Don't underestimate evil. Don't think that just because you're a follower of Almighty Jesus... Well, sin will do whatever I say. It does not work like that. Secondly, I think we underestimate the the hardness of the human heart. And we can be blase about ministry, about evangelism. We kind of think, you know, um, if we do things right, if we get a good enough speaker in and the evening is, is nice enough and there's a good enough ambience and, and we prevent com- present compelling enough arguments, then people are just bound to become Christians. But here's the thing, the most gifted speaker in the world can't raise the dead. Dead people can't hear, can't see, can't respond. Ministry without prayerfully relying on Jesus is like trying to sail without wind. Now I could get seasick in a bath, so I'm quite happy if I get on a boat and there's no wind. But but you you can have all the sailing lessons there are, all the yachting skills in the world, but if there is no wind, you're going nowhere. And we can think that we run the best evangelistic events as a church, that we get in some really top-notch speakers, that um, some of these resources we've been using are, I've seen lots of people become Christians, but if we do not trust in the power of God, nothing, nothing can or will happen. Without the power of God, 
ministry is empty and pointless. And the Holy Spirit warns us, don't underestimate the opposition, the hardness of the human heart when we try to tell people about Jesus and the seriousness of sin that we indulge in our lives. But that does not mean we should be afraid and we should live our lives cowed with fear because just as we shouldn't underestimate the opposition, we cannot overestimate the power of Jesus Christ. He is not equal and opposite to Satan. Satan is a creature. He is the creator. That is not an equal fight. If you thought this afternoon was a, was a slightly one-sided match-up at Wimbledon, that is nothing compared with Almighty God and a creature. There is only ever going to be one outcome when it's God Almighty against Satan. There is no limit to God's power and love and wisdom. So do not be intimidated. Pray to God. He has the power to deal with our sin and he has the power to open people's eyes so that they'll come to know Jesus Christ. Pray to God. We live in a war and people around us are dying every day and going to their eternal death. People we live with, work with, holiday with. But Jesus has the power to save them. You and I need to live like we're at war. We need to use our time and our money and shape our lives as though we're at war. And we need to pray and trust in Jesus as if he is the only hope for victory. We were, um, Pete's already mentioned, we had um, uh, a breakfast yesterday with Alex, a mission partner um, who's working in the Muslim world. And as Pete said, (laughs) he lives in a country where the best, most reliable data is that there are 10 indigenous believers total. Ten Christians, completely. And he's over there working. And he says, not only that, but it is actually impossible to become a Christian. In terms of, they're, they're just, they don't understand the concept of people not being Muslims. The whole concept just makes no sense. It is also illegal to convert to Christianity. It means you will not get a job. You'll lose your job if you have one. You bring shame on your family who will ostracize you, probably kidnap you. If you're lucky, you'll be thrown in prison. For many, it's far, far worse than that. It's not just difficult for people to turn from Islam to follow Jesus in the country he's in. It is impossible. And after he finishes um, the stage of training he's on at the moment, he's going to a harder country to plant churches. You think, has the sunshine got to his head or something? I mean, he's mad. Except he's not. Because he trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who took 11 useless, terrified disciples and turned the entire known world upside down through them. And so, he's not afraid. He doesn't underestimate the seriousness of what he's facing. But he knows that Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and who raises the dead and who opened his eyes, can do the same for anybody else. And so he's gone. Because he knows you cannot overestimate the power of Jesus. Just as we close, there are lots of models of prayer in the Bible. There's the Lord's Prayer, probably most famously. There's Paul's prayers, wonderful things to to work through. But I wonder if the most encouraging prayer in the entire Bible is this one. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. 
It is hard to trust that Jesus is the all-conquering, almighty saviour God when it just doesn't look like that. I mean, we're a reasonable-sized crowd tonight, but you walk out tomorrow into your workplaces or Alex goes back to his country and it does not look like Jesus is the all-conquering hero. It feels weak and rather pathetic to be a Christian at the moment in London. And so it's hard to trust and live as if Jesus is the almighty hero. And so often we are like this father. I do believe, but gosh, help me with my unbelief. If you look how I live and pray, it doesn't always look that way. But do you see how Jesus answers his prayer? He brings his son to life. I said before, it's, it is like getting on an aeroplane. Uh, I've, the most nervous flyer I've ever flown with was somebody who would go into rigor mortis um, if they got really nervous. I kid you not, and they would stop breathing. Um, they forgot to tell us on one group holiday the first time, and so we had to stop the plane on the runway. Thankfully, it was an Australian, and they're good at shouting loudly. Screamed the plane down and literally slammed on the brakes, and we had to get them off. Um, they... But I, I kid you not, they're so nervous about getting on a plane that they go into rigor mortis uh, when the plane starts to take off and they stop breathing for a minute or so. And then they're all right. Um, but they're just so nervous. You know what? Um, when, when, we, uh, when we flew off again, there was no difference between how safe she was and how safe the rest of us were on the plane. You don't need to be full of confidence for the plane to get you there safely. You've just got to have enough faith to get in the plane and to be held down by your friends. (laughs) You don't need to have masses of faith to have your sins forgiven by Jesus. You don't need to have masses of faith to tell other people about Jesus. You don't need to have masses of faith to see dead people spiritually come to eternal life. You've just got to have enough faith to cling on to Jesus, to turn to him and to ask him to help you overcome your unbelief. There is no more encouraging prayer in the Bible and how wonderful as we face serious opposition with an awesome saviour. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, for many of us, we would say, I do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the King. I, I do believe that I should be living as if I'm at war. I I do believe that uh, the sin in my life needs to be fought, but so often I'm marked by unbelief. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe that uh, you do hear those feeble prayers, that you do not need great faith in us to do great things, because it's not faith that does things, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and he is almighty. Help us to turn to him, help us to live for him, help us to trust him and help us Uh, Never to be foolish enough to try to do things without him. But never also to be foolish enough to think that he is not big enough and strong enough for the things we face in life. We praise you for our almighty saviour and ask that we would live for him. Amen.